You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, today we are back in the book of Genesis, and we are coming up to the end of this set of sermons through these opening chapters, the the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. You could think about these opening chapters as the prologue, really to the whole Bible, but in particular to the book of Genesis. And we are in part 14 of 15, so we are right uh, next to the finish line. And uh, since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis, I want to take a second to just sort of relocate us in the story. When we get to Genesis chapter 9, where are we in the story of Genesis and and in this book of the Bible? And let me say two things about our location, about where we are in the story in Genesis chapter 9. The first thing we could say is we are in Genesis 9 to life after the fall. We're to life after the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, which is, is, you know, if you want a two-word summary of Genesis 3, it's the fall, right? And in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents ate that forbidden fruit. And with that forbidden fruit, sin broke into God's creation. We've said this multiple times over the last few weeks. When sin broke in, it broke everything. You just cannot overstate the catastrophe of Genesis chapter 3. And part of that catastrophe is our first parents lost their place. They were kicked out of the garden that God had prepared for them. And so at the end of Genesis 3 in verse 24, we read this. He, talking about God, drove out the man. He drove out our first parents. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, when you finish chapter 3, you get to the end of verse 24. The scriptures aim to have you on the edge of your seat. It's aiming to get you in that moment when you realize they have been kicked out of God's place. It's meant to produce in you the question of what in the world is going to happen to Adam and Eve now? What will life be like east of Eden? What will will life be like after the fall? Now, in a lot of ways, that's the, the sort of question that the next few chapters in the Bible are aiming to answer. This is what they're trying to do. So you could think about uh, Genesis chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. You could think of it like a movie trailer. Uh, They're giving us a glimpse into the biblical story, what life will be like after the fall. It's, It's in a way a preview of coming attractions. It's giving us that sort of inside scoop, that, that sort of glance at what we're going to find in the rest of the biblical story. And, and that trailer introduces us to the tragedy, J- just to the tragedy of life east of Eden after the fall. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders his brother Abel, murders him. Th- that's the next scene. They are kicked out of the garden and a brother murders his brother. Then Cain, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, it says that he went away from the presence of the Lord. He drew away from God. He went away from God. And east of Eden, after the fall, uh, people live like Cain. There is this innate desire in us all to live autonomous lives. God, you go over there. I'll go over here and I'll be God over here. 
Yet you see this innate desire for autonomy. And Genesis 4 shows us something scary, I think, that, that even in their autonomy, they can accomplish amazing things. If you look at Genesis chapter 4, the last half of that uh, chapter, they are building cities, the arts are growing, agriculture is, is, is expanding, uh, the creation of tools, all of this stuff is happening. They are accomplishing great things in their autonomy. Apart from God, away from God. In their autonomy, they were accomplished. But they couldn't accomplish their way out of the curse. For all of their accomplishments, they were still descending deeper into the abyss of depravity. It was just getting darker and darker and darker. Then you get to Genesis chapter 5, and we have that constant refrain in Genesis chapter 5. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died eight times in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, Genesis chapter 5 is, in a lot of ways, a storied presentation of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, and there will be a day east of Eden, after the fall, th there will be a day when we all pay the wage, and he died. Then by the time you reach Genesis chapter 6, I mean, it's about as bad as it gets when you get to Genesis chapter 6. Listen to how the scriptures uh, talk about life in Genesis 6. This is verse 5 of Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then listen to what it says. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, it would be hard to use more emphatic language than that to talk about the darkness that had descended upon humanity. And humanity's sin then provokes, stirs up, agitates the gentle, kind, loving, just heart of God to judgment. And then if you read Genesis 6 through 8, it is a horrifying picture of the judgment of God, the flood of God's judgment sweeping sinners away. Right? This is life east of Eden. I mean, it is a sobering picture when you read forward in Genesis chapter 4, after the fall, life after the fall. But in Genesis 9, we're not just um, to life after the fall. In Genesis 9, we are also to life after the flood. So in Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, right, the boat has landed, uh, the, the waters have subsided, we now have dry earth, and this is what we read in verse 18 of Genesis 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So, first of all, we can just recognize that God kept his promise. The, the eight, you have Noah and his wife, then you have Noah's three sons and their wives. And the eight, Noah and his family, were kept safe during the storm of God's judgment. God kept his promise. And now they walked off the boat, and they are ready to start a new life in Genesis chapter 9. Right? And commentators are quick to pick up on the connection and, and the sort of overlap and the comparison between Adam and Noah. So in Genesis 
chapter 1 and 2, God created, right, created the world, and then he puts Adam and Eve, our first parents, into that creation. And then in Genesis chapter 9, uh, you could think of what happened in the flood as God doing a recreating work or a restoring work. So God has restored the earth. He's recreated the earth. And then in Genesis 9, he puts Noah and his family in his recreated world. Right? So there's a lot of overlap between what we're seeing in the first three chapters of the Bible and what we see in Genesis 6 through Genesis 9. Now, can you imagine the moment? If you're Adam and, or if you're Noah and his family, you're walking off the boat. Your heart at this moment is just brimming with optimism. We are about to start new lives in this new world. It's just brimming with, with hope. This new world is packed with new potential and new possibility. And you can just imagine them thinking, looking back, we're just seeing that humanity has made a mess of everything. I mean, they've just messed everything up. But now we're going to get a chance to, to set this thing aright. We're going to get a chance to, to lay these tracks in the right direction. And, and this new world and humanity in it is going to go in the right way. You can just imagine the optimism. We're starting new lives in this new world. And in Genesis chapter 9, we get, we get our first glimpse into this new world, which makes us, just like the end of Genesis 3, it makes us ask the question, what, what will life after the flood look like? What will life in this new world look like? And this text shows us two things, two sobering things about what life after the flood will look like. Here's the first. And by the way, we're going to spend 90% of our time in the first. Here's the first thing we learn about life after the flood. We learn this, that sin has survived. That, that sin survived. So when Noah and his family get off the boat, uh, think about what's happening. Uh, their families begin to grow. Right? They're expanding their families. Noah became a grandpa, which is a huge moment in the life of, of any person. He, he became a grandpa. And Noah even began, he started a new business. This is in verse 20. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. We have human history's first winery right here in Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. He planted some uh, vines, and he started to learn about fermentation. He, he got it all figured out, right? And then you get to verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. That is not the way the story is supposed to go. Th that is not what we're expecting to read in verse 21. This is not what life in this new world is supposed to look like. This is a shocking scene. It's an unexpected twist in the story. And this unexpected twist is meant to teach us something. And here's the lesson. That yes, the flood wiped out most sinners, but the flood did not wipe out sin. Sin survived. Sin walked off the boat and into God's restored and recreated world. And sin didn't walk off the boat beside Noah and his family. Sin walked off the boat in Noah and his family. 
Right, right? We have a brand new world, but we have the same old sin. That's the lesson that we're, we're seeing here in Genesis 9. Sin survived. Now, when you read verse 21, in a lot of ways, it is meant to bring tears to our eyes. In this moment in the story of Genesis, our hearts are just filled with hope and expectation. This is Noah. No, Noah, this is a new world. This is a chance to start all over. And maybe Noah will be that one who brings relief, right? Just like his dad Lamech said in, in Genesis chapter 5, 29, that, that this is going to be my son. He's going to bring relief. Maybe Noah will do that. Maybe, just maybe, Noah will be the one who is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Maybe he's going to be the one who sets everything right that is wrong. Maybe that will be Noah. Your heart is just filled with optimism and hope and expectation. But our hope dies with Noah drunk and naked in his tent. It's a terrible moment in the scriptures. It's just a moment that is so deflating in the Bible. And now, uh, let me pause here. I want to linger here in a moment and just step back and ask some questions about what can we learn in this text? What sort of implications can we draw to, to sort of apply to our life and to consider? Uh, let me give you three things that we can learn here in this text. Here's the first. This text is showing us that you are capable of every sin. You are capable. You have the capacity for every sin. Now remember, this is Noah. This is a man who is described in the Bible with the best of language. In Genesis 6 verse 9, Noah is described as a righteous man, as a blameless man, as a man who walked with God. Now if you're in the Bible and, and words are going to be associated with your name, those are the words you want, right? Righteous, blameless, walked with God. Th those are the ones you want beside your name. But righteous and blameless Noah is now drunk and naked Noah. This text is showing us that we, even Noah, we all possess a unique ability to wreck our lives. You possess that ability. I possess that ability. Even righteous, blameless Noah possesses that ability. We are never more than three minutes away from wrecking everything. I just let that sober you for a moment. You, me, we are never more than three minutes away from wrecking our lives. Because sin remains in us, we are capable of every sin. Now, this moment in the Bible is not an aberration. It's not just like, yeah, just, just one of these sort of biblical heroes. It's just one of them that really messed things up. No, that is not how it goes, is it? If you just read forward in the Bible, you get to Abraham. Abraham is like, I mean, he's like Father Abraham, you know? I mean, he's like the one that is full of faith. He, he is that Abraham. And yet Abraham, on two occasions, is willing to give his wife away to another man to save his own skin. That, that's Abraham. Or we could fast forward to Moses, the guy who wrote this book, right? Uh, Noah, or, or Moses, uh, he kills a man. He straight up murders a man. 
Or we could read forward a little bit further and get to David in the scriptures. David, he commits, the, and by the way, David is a man after God's own heart, right? Again, just all the words you would want associated with your name. But that same David, a man after God's own heart, had a moment in his life, just a terrible moment, where he commits grievous sin. He takes another man's wife in an act of adultery. And then he compounds his problem by killing her husband in an attempt to cover it up. I mean, it's just about as bad as it gets, right? So this is no aberration. This is what we find throughout the scriptures. And, and what are the scriptures teaching us in this? Answer. It's not just that bad people are capable of the worst things. That's how we often think about it, right? Oh, here's the worst sins. Well, just like the worst people we know would be capable of. No, that's not how the Bible frames it. It is not what the Bible is trying to teach us about how sin works in any of our lives. It's not just that bad people are capable of the worst things. No, it's that the best of people are capable of the worst things. We're all capable of the worst things. That's the point the Bible is making. This is what it's trying to show us, even in a text like this. So, so just think for a moment about the most grievous sin you can think of. I mean, if you had to do the ranking, this would be at the top of your list. It, it's that thing. In a text like this, the Bible is trying to show you that you have the capacity for that sin. You're not immune to it. The, the sin that remains in you makes you capable of every sin. Because sin remains in you. Uh, just like it did in righteous Noah. Blameless Noah. Because sin remains in you under the right conditions we're capable of the worst of things. Never more than three minutes away from wrecking our life. So part of what this text is meant to do is to produce in the people of God a, a diligence of vigilance in our fight against sin. It's to put that vigilance deep down in your bones. I'm going to wake up every day of my life and I'm going to fight against the sin that remains in me, knowing it is always trying to find a way out of my life to wreck everything in my life. It's supposed to put in us that sort of a vigilance, to fight against sin every single day of our lives. You have the capacity for every sin. I, I have that capacity. Here's another implication of this text, something that we can learn from this text, is that age is no remedy for sin. Noah is 650 years old in this text, right? So he, he, is, he is definitely in the latter parts of his life here, right? If you just take uh, the sort of lifespans in the Bible and you just sort of bring those into our life today, we could just maybe think of Noah in his middle 60s, something like that. He, he's in the last third of his life. Uh, you, you, when you think about just the, the, the season of his life, he's out of the proverbial sort of storm of his life. Uh, the most difficult part of his life came in, I've got to build an ark, all these people are mocking me, right? And I'm going to float in this ark during the storm of God's judgment, right? That's the most difficult part of his life. And he's out of that proverbial storm. And he's in this sweet season. He's a grandpa, right? He's enjoying God's good creation. He's in that season of his life. And there in the last third of his life, the sweetest season of his life came his absolute worst day. Age is no remedy for sin. 
after Satan tempts Jesus in Luke chapter 4, the text says that he left Jesus waiting for an opportune time. And part of what we learn in the scriptures is that Satan will patiently wait not just years of our life for the opportune time to tempt us, but for decades of our life. Decades and decades waiting for the right moment to bring the wreckage. After walking closely with the Lord for years, George Mueller, one of my favorite people in church history, uh, he began to pray this prayer. Lord, don't let me become a wicked old man. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that prayer. Lord, don't let me become a wicked old man. I mean, don't we all want to die one day with our heart open and tender and alive to Jesus? Don't you want that? Gosh, I so desperately want that. I don't want to die one day with a heart that is shriveled and, and cold and closed to the person of Jesus. I don't want that. I want it to be alive and open and, and huge, hopeful toward God. So friends, this text is saying to us, yes, be vigilant in your fight against sin every single day for the rest of your life, all the way till your dying day. Be vigilant against sin. It's, it's in you. It's going to remain in you until Jesus comes back. And it's going to be trying to get out to produce wreckage everywhere. So, so be vigilant against sin every day for the rest of your life. Age is no remedy for sin. And thirdly, Another implication of this text, I want to just spend a moment applying and, and just setting before you to consider. One thing that we're learning here in this text is that wine is a gift from the Lord, but it is a gift that requires great wisdom. First, wine is a gift, right? It's a gift from God to his people. That's the way it's framed in the scriptures. Wine doesn't just uh, sort of appear without God knowing about it. I I've heard people say it's, it's a part of the curtain. No, it's not a part of a fallen way. That's it is a gift from God to his people, right? When Jesus is performing his first miracle in John chapter 2, the miracle is turning water into wine. So it's a gift from God to his people. Uh, it, wine doesn't just show up in this life. It also shows up in the life to come. Like when God is re fully restored this world, fixed everything that's broken in this world, in that new world, that, that world that's to come, that incredibly bright future that is in front of God's people, in that new world, things like wine show up. Right when the prophet Isaiah is anticipating and looking forward to that new world, he says this in Isaiah 25, verse 6. He says, On the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. That's the picture he uses for this incredibly bright future in front of us. Joel, he, he uses similar imagery. He says this in Joel 3:18. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream of Judah shall flow with water. Right? That, that's the imagery that the scriptures use of the new heavens and the new earth. So wine is a gift from God, but, but it is a dangerous gift that requires great wisdom. 
Uh, if you want it in a metaphor, maybe you can think of it this way. It's like a dad giving his 10-year-old son a, a pocket knife for his birthday. Now, I, I happen to think that a pocket knife for a 10-year-old boy is a great gift to give a 10-year-old. But that gift is dangerous. So that gift is going to come with serious conversation. It's going to come with a certain level of wisdom in a 10-year-old. And the same is true with wine. When you uh, think about alcohol and, and, and wine and how it shows up in the scriptures, the first time it shows up it is right here in Genesis uh, chapter 9. And the very next verse, after it shows up, you have a man that is drunk and naked in his tent. That's the first time it shows up. The third time it shows up, it's even worse. It's Genesis 19. Lot repeats Noah's sin, and it even has a more shameful ending. It's just a terrible scene in Genesis 19. So there's a warning embedded into the Bible, embedded into this gift that God gives. And that warning is to be careful, to, to be so very careful. Wine requires great wisdom. It's only to be enjoyed legally, like you're of age, you're obeying the laws of the land legally in moderation and in ways that don't cause other people to stumble. The Bible gives guardrails around the enjoyment of this gift. Now, I want to just take a moment to pastorally address our church family. Last night, as I was just thinking about this part of the sermon and this text that we're just considering here, I couldn't get away from the thought that there will be many gathered right here with us this morning, considering this text, looking at this event in Noah's life. And the truth is, right now, you are not being careful. You're not being wise as it relates to alcohol in your life. There is a gap of wisdom. There is a gap of care. You're abusing alcohol. You're getting drunk on a regular basis. You're just staying right there at the line of drunkenness. And you're not taking that seriously. You're not seeing that as the Bible does, as a sin that needs to be repented of and turned from. You're just not taking any of these things seriously, this dangerous gift seriously. And when we don't take things that are dangerous seriously, this is what the Bible calls foolish. If you want to look in the Proverbs and just track that word fool in the book of Proverbs, you're going to see it connected so often to this gift of alcohol, of wine, and just the improper use of it. Just not taking this gift seriously and using wisdom and care. And God has you here today to wake you up out of your folly and to bring you back into a path of wisdom, of care. So, so many of us need to look at this passage with a ton of sobriety and then look at our own lives. And we need to come back into a way of wisdom, repenting of our sin and coming back home to the Lord. Now, for some in the room, though, we are beyond a lack of wisdom and a lack of care when it comes to alcohol. And we are to a problem where we have developed a dependence upon alcohol. Now, here's the problem when we develop a dependence upon anything. We are often the last to see it or the last to be able to admit to it. So some of us in the room this morning need to have the courage to look at those we love that are around us and to ask the question. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a trusted friend. We need to ask the courage, or the question with courage. Do you think I have a problem with alcohol? Are you seeing any gaps in the way that I'm relating to alcohol? And then we need to listen. 
And if those that we love are looking at us and saying, I think there's an issue here, then friend, look at me. Today is the day to make war on that. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year. It will never be easier in the future. Today is the day to make war on it. Today is the day to walk out of that road of folly and back into that road of wisdom. Today is the day. So you need to be known in that. You need to invite community in on that. You need to get brothers and sisters praying for you in that to help you along with that. But this is the day to go to war if you're seeing, yes, there is a lack of care. There's a lack of wisdom. Today is the day to repent of these things. Today is the day to walk back into wisdom. Be careful. Friends, I just want to look at you again. Please be careful here. It is a dangerous gift. It requires great wisdom. Probably requires community around any of our lives. This particular gift. Okay, now we're back to the text. Now, unfortunately, here's, here's what happens in this text. It would be nice if Noah's sin was just contained to Noah and the story moved on. That would be amazing in this text. If we could just isolate this sin and nothing else happened, but that's not what happens here. Noah's sin didn't stop with Noah. Noah's sin sparked sin in the life of his son, Ham. Noah's, now just consider that. Noah's sin, the dad, sparked sin in the life of his son. Look, look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and began, uh, became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now that instantly sort of brings the question up, well, what exactly did, did Ham do? What, what is Ham's sin in this text? What, what is the wrong that he did? And there's been a lot of ink spilled over trying to narrow that down and be precise with what is the sin. And in general, there are two broad categories. Some think uh, that this text is... Um, this text is pointing to some sort of sexual deviance, some sort of sexual perversion. And the language used in the text is used for that periodically in the Bible. So uh, there is some merit to that. Uh, but other people, and I would fall in this camp, uh, believe that Ham's sin was much more simple. That Ham's sin was just simply dishonoring his dad. That that's the problem we're seeing in Ham in this text. And I think that mainly uh, because of the contrast between what Ham did and then what uh, Shem and Japheth do. And look at what they do in verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid, uh, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Ham did two things in contrast to that. He did two things. One, he saw. He saw his dad in one of his worst moments. Now, this scene is not a, I just stumbled into the tent and oh my gosh, there's my dad and, and then I walk out. It's not that. This scene carries more than that. It's a, maybe you could think of it as this way. It's like a voyeuristic type of scene. It's a gloating glance. Uh, it, it's a way of seeing that is enjoying the shame of his father. He, he's seeing his father in his worst, mo worst moment, and he's actually enjoying the shame that it's bringing him. It's that type of seeing. 
So he saw and then he said. These were the two problems. This is how he dishonored his dad. He saw and then he said. He saw the shame of his dad and the text says he told his brothers. And you can picture the scene. He just found his dad in just the worst of moments. But rather than covering the shame of his dad, just like, just like God did for Adam in Genesis chapter 3 when he made garments of skin that covered his nakedness, rather than covering the shame of his dad, Ham increased the shame of his dad by announcing it to the world. Hey world, let me tell you what I just saw. That's what Ham did in this text. Now, you could think about his sin as a gross violation of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Now, what does it mean to honor your, anyone? Well, that, was, that word honor is often translated as glory. And the word glory in the Bible uh, means weight. It means that something is heavy. So to honor someone is to treat something as weighty. To, to treat someone as significant, as important, as valuable. Uh, the, opposite is, is, uh, the, the opposite is to trivialize someone, uh, to treat them as light, to despise them, to, the, to, to treat them as if they don't matter. So you could think of honoring someone as a disposition of the heart where we're treating our parents or whoever we're honoring with obedience, with reverence, with gratefulness. It's a mixture of those three words coming out of a human heart. Obedience, reverence, gratefulness. Now consider him in this text. Uh, he shows us that this command to honor our parents, uh, it doesn't disappear with age. So, so we don't like become a certain age where it's like that fifth commandment no longer applies. It, we don't do that. Ham is roughly 100 years old in this text. Right? And he's being held accountable for a lack of honor. That's his sin, a lack of honor, a breaking of the fifth commandment. He's not honoring his dad. R rather, he is dishonoring his dad. So maybe you could think of these three words, obedience, reverence, and gratefulness on a spectrum. And when we're young, when we're uh, living under the roof of our parents, uh, they're paying our way in life, all of those things are happening, then uh, honoring tends toward obedience. Obedience, this side of the spectrum is what's going to be emphasized. Uh, as we age beside our parents, then that, that reverence, that gratefulness, that side of the spectrum is going to be emphasized. But we never outgrow the fifth commandment. We're always commanded for the rest of our lives to honor our mother and our father. And as we'll see, God takes th this particular commandment seriously. Like seriously enough to, to highlight this. This is actually the central sin in Genesis 9 is not Noah's drunkenness, but this moment of dishonoring. So the Bible takes this with such seriousness, with such sobriety. Now, I'm actually grateful that we're in a text that's highlighting the, the idea of honoring our mother and our father because next week is Father's Day, right? So we're getting a chance to do that very thing next week. And I just want to encourage you to, this week, ask the Lord for one way that you could honor your dad. And again, next week's Father's Day. So just one way that the Lord would give you to honor your dad. One of the ways I tried to do that recently is I wrote a tribute letter to my dad. And uh, this is just a way to bless my dad, to, to honor him, to let him know how much I love him and how grateful I am for him. And it started like this. I said, hey dad, I've put myself in your shoes a lot lately. 
And I know that most dads, equipped with the tools we have at the time, step into parenting hoping to do the best that we can. And that makes me think that most dads eventually look back over those years of parenting, asking that question, how did I do? And most dads, and I think I'll be in this category, need more than their own answer to that question. They need, or at least I would, to hear an answer from their kids. So this letter is an attempt to answer that question for you. So I just thought back about every memory I had as a kid growing up, everything that involved my dad, and then I wrote it to him. And I, I expressed my gratitude for him, my thankfulness for him as a way to, to honor him and to bless him. So, so maybe that's an idea for you for Father's Day. But this week, ask the Lord for one way you can honor your dad. Now, let me show you why vigilance just and every day fighting against sin in our life, that sin that remains in you, why it's so important. Noah's sin, in a lot of ways you could think of it like this, it sparked an uncontrollable chain reaction in this text. So, so Noah's sin sparked sin in the life of his son, which then sparked wreckage in future generations. Th that's what this text is showing us. God, not just so sobering. No, this sin, Noah's sin, sparked sin in his son, which then sparked wreckage. An absolute chaos down the road. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that are just intriguing about this text. Let me point a couple of these out to you. First is that each time Ham is mentioned in the text, he's always connected to one of his four sons, Canaan. So you see it in verse 20. It names Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But it adds, Ham was the father of Canaan. Uh, then again in verse 22, and Ham introduces Ham again, and then it has this little parenthetical note the father of Canaan. So obviously this text is drawing our attention right from the start to Canaan. Even more important than Ham in this text is Canaan. It's trying to, to help us see through Ham all the way down to a descendant, to, to Canaan. And then you get to verse 24. When Noah awoke, it says, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. We don't know how he knew. The other brothers probably told him. Uh, but he, he found out this is what Ham did. This is what Noah said. Verse 25, he said, this is the first time we hear any words come out of the mouth of Noah in Genesis. Noah says this, cursed be Ham. That's not what the text says though, is it? It, it doesn't say cursed be Ham. It says cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And then he said in verse 26, Blessed be the, uh, the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah's first words, Cursed be Canaan, not, not Ham, but, but Ham's son. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, why is this in the Bible? Think contextually with me just for a moment. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he gives them to the people of God, the people of Israel, right? The descendants of, of Shem. He, he gives it to them uh, right at the end of his life. So this is after the people of Israel had been brought out of Egypt, but it's before they enter into the land that God prepared for them in Genesis 1 and 2, then promised them through Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 12. It's right before they come into that land. And do you know how that land is described throughout Genesis? 35 times, roughly, it's referred to, that promised land, that, that land that God had prepared for his people, right? That, the line of Shem. 
It is referred to as the land of Canaan. So God has his people right at the, uh, the, sort of the edge of the land of Canaan, this land that he has prepared for them. And Moses gives them these first five books of the Bible. And in those first five books of the Bible is Genesis 9, where Noah prophetically looks to the future, to this very moment when God's people, the line of Shem, would be about to clash with the line of Canaan. Right? It's this moment where these two people are about, these two nations are about to, to, to butt heads and clash. And this passage anticipates that moment. When, when God's people would go into the land of Canaan as an instrument of God's justice. So in many ways, this text, Genesis 9, is a setup for just the brutal conflict we're about to see between God's people and the surrounding nations in the rest of the Old Testament. It's a way of framing and giving us a context for why is all of that wreckage and chaos happening? All comes back to these sins in Genesis chapter 9. So in, when I think about this passage, I, I think it just contains such a sober warning for all of us. This is the wreckage sin brings to future generations. This moment in Noah's life sparked sin in the life of his son, a dishonoring of his dad, which brought wreckage behind it. Friends, your godliness right now, your vigilance against sin, your putting sin to death in your life right now has future implications, generational implications. This text is just, it's doing everything it can to say to us, be vigilant in the fight against sin. Every day, wake up seeking to put sin to death until the end of our lives. We'll end here. Here's the second thing uh, that we see in this text. What is life after the flood going to look like? It's not only that we see that sin survived, but that death still reigns. Death still reigns. Uh, look at verses 28 and 29. This is the closing of this text, the closing of Genesis 9. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. That's how the scene ends. It ends by reminding us that life after the flood, in life after the flood, death isn't dead. Death still reigns. The wages of sin is still death, both after the fall and after the flood. In a lot of ways, Genesis 9 ends with a throwback to the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, where we hear those same words over and over again, eight times, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death still reigns after the flood. Our man Noah survived the storm of God's judgment, right? God gave him another 350 years. But the end of his life here on this earth contained these three words, and he died. I don't know how many more years the Lord will give you. Uh, the Lord may have all sorts of miracles between your life right now and, uh, you, you know, your death one day. All sorts of miracles of preserving your life, all the things. But at the end of your life, these will be the three words written, and he died, and she died. This passage, like most in the Bible, have a whole lot of sin in it and a whole lot of death in it. 
That, that's what this passage contains. But like every passage in the Old Testament, this passage is not just meant to be seen, it's meant to be seen through. We're supposed to peer through the passage to the person of Jesus who came to conquer sin and death. That's who we're supposed to see in this passage. Seeing through this passage to the person that in his life, death, and resurrection, he defeated sin. He unshackles us from sin. He frees us from the bondage of sin. He makes us new people, new creations with new desires. Right? That's what Jesus does for his people. He frees us from sin. He defeated sin. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus defeated death. He's taken death and he's trampled on death. See, in this story, sin and death have the last word. But in the story of the scriptures, sin and death do not have the last word Jesus does. Amen? This is why we read in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Uh, friends, if Noah could come back and have one word with us today, he could stand right up here and he could address us one last time. The first three words out of his mouth would not be, curse be Canaan. The first three words out of his mouth would be, please take Christ. The one who's defeated all of this sin, the one who's defeated death itself, please Take Christ. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful today. To wipe away the things that would not be helpful and... And maybe you could ask the Lord this question today. What is that one area of my life right now? That one area of temptation? That one area of my struggle with sin that if left unchecked will bring wreckage? What is that one area? What is that one area where, Lord, you want me to renew my vigilance? Or today you want me to take steps in putting, putting this thing to death? What is that one area that I need to repent of and to come back home to you? And friends, whatever that area is this morning, I just want to plead with you. Take it seriously. Come back into the way of wisdom. C come back home to the Lord. And this passage leaves us with that reminder that one day we too will die if Jesus doesn't return. And what could be more pressing in our life than to be prepared for that moment? And the Bible is clear, the only way we can be prepared is to turn from our sin and to throw ourselves upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
So friend, if you don't know Jesus today, if there's never been a moment in your life where you have taken that decisive step toward him, may this be your moment. May this be your morning. Throw yourselves upon the mercy of God. He stands so ready to rescue and save you. In the best way you know how, call out to God. Offer him your life. So Father, would you, would you speak to us? Would you talk to us, God? Would you give us the courage to act where it matters most today? And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.